Hello and welcome to The Last Best Hope, the podcast from Oxford's RAI about American ideas and ideals. My name is Adam Smith. Tonight, a nation divided and on edge. Peaceful protests over abortion rights punctuated by isolated incidents of vandalism and violence. Windows smashed at the Vermont State House. In Colorado, a Christian pregnancy center threatened and burned. Division and anger seem to be the defining features of American politics today. It's easy to think that this state of extreme polarization is something new, and it certainly has new features. DC is a motherfucking war zone! But of course, America has been divided before. There was, after all, a civil war. In fact, Perhaps the vision is America's normal state, interrupted by brief periods of consensus and bipartisanship. You cite near the front of your book this extraordinary business about 70% of Americans not wanting their son or daughter to marry someone from another political party. And that's a pretty extraordinary state of affairs to arrive at. It is. It is. At least some party members would rather have their party in power than the republic surviving as a republic. One of the most learned and perceptive observers of American political culture, and especially its divisions, is James Marone, professor at Brown University, the author of numerous books, including most recently Republic of Wrath, How American Politics Turned Tribal, from George Washington to Donald Trump. Congress, before the Civil War, uh, had some 60 episodes of fistfights, duels. One legislator from the South, a Hammond, said the only congressmen who don't have a gun and a knife in their pockets are the ones with two guns. So this whole notion that the parties have been at loggerheads, old, old stuff. So I went set about to find out what's old, but what's new, what's different. So let's go right back to the foundation of the Republic. Now, it seems to me that right, the, the United States was born out of a revolution. One of the things that does is to create huge pressure for conformity. This was a, a, an experimental republic. The founding fathers disagreed on many things, but one thing they almost all agreed on was that there was a fragility at the heart of this new revolutionary experiment. And so in that context, faction, disagreement, partisanship seems even more dangerous, did it, than in other polities that had been around for longer, had greater experience of how to kind of navigate difference. The, and you're absolutely right. The uh, people at the Constitutional Convention thought faction was really one of the greater sins. Benjamin Franklin proposed not paying public servants because factions arise out of the spoils of office. And Thomas Jefferson, who would shortly start the first political party, said, if I could not get to heaven but with a party, I would not go there at all. Rather burn in hell. Uh, Now, not everybody saw it that way. James Madison, the most farsighted of uh, of the people at the convention, understood that factions were inevitable in modern times. And sure enough, the first administration, the Washington administration launches, and people find they have terrible differences. And those factions, before Washington is out of office, result in two political parties. One started by Jefferson, and one started by Hamilton. So right from the very start, there was a religion, no parties, and a reality. We must have parties to sort out our differences. Now, 
here's the great consequence of the question you pose. They didn't like parties, and yet, paradoxically, they immediately made parties. This is also a constitutional society, organized around a written constitution. And that constitution makes absolutely no accommodation for political parties. So political parties spring up, not just extra-constitutionally, but in a way that the constitutional doesn't help. So we end up with party conflict unregulated, unnoticed, uh, unmediated in any way by the Constitution. And that is one of the long-term troubles of, uh, of the American Republic. And just to jump in there, is one example of how you could regulate party competition is to have Her Majesty's opposition. Right. So, so in a, in, a, in, a, in a British parliamentary context, at least as parties started evolving in the 19th century in Britain, party competition was absorbed within the constitutional structures of the day by the formalisation of the recognition of the idea that you had a leader of the opposition. Is that the, the absence of that in the United States? Is that particularly what the kind of thing that you have in mind that was absent? Yes, I can be much more specific about it. You don't have to have written rules. You can have patterns of behavior. Her Majesty's opposition, for example. We we all agree we're going to do it this way. We're going to pattern our parliament and our parties on this kind of behavior. Uh, in the United States, there was neither a cultural agreement, as in England, or a legal agreement. So the Constitution bounces this, the whole issue of elections, which raises the issue of parties, off to the states. The states can do what they like. We're not interested in this. What do the states do? They immediately make the rules part of the game of politics. So in the very first contested election, the one to replace Washington, of course, everybody votes for Washington, but after him, we, we have contested elections. The very first contested election seven out of the 16 states change the rules of play right. that they have to, 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 to advantage the, uh, the majority. And this then becomes, this is the core to the explanation that, that you said, which I find very compelling in this, in the book that you've recently written about why American politics has often been so polarized, is that the rules of the game themselves have almost always been at stake in in political conflict. Mm. The rules of the game and, of course, critically, who can play. Yes, so we've got a two-dimensional chess. One, first of all, what are the rules? When we have a, a vote for president, is a, when West Virginia votes or Virginia votes, will it be winner-take-all or will we divide the the electoral vote by uh, by who wins how much or by county, that's something that's been up for grabs. And then who gets to vote? And then we get to the battle of who's an American, who participates, right. who's in, who's out, who are we? And the fact of federalism is clearly important to everything that we ever say when we talk about the United States. So as you, you mentioned there, almost in passing, and it's such a fundamental thing that people may not be aware of, there is no right to vote in the United States. The Bush v. Gore decision in the Supreme Court that decided the 2000 election, the wrong way if you ask me, but you haven't asked, so that's an aside, has this remarkable quote, which is, there is no right to vote for the electors of the president in the Constitution of the United States. If a legislature 
speaking constitutionally, if a legislature says, you know what, we're not going to have this by popular vote, New York Assembly will decide who will be president. There's nothing in the Constitution saying, right. no, no, you can't do that. Bush v. Gore decided that. You say you disagree with their decision, but they're right about that. I mean, there is a, there's no alternative view. to There is no right to vote in the United States. Because of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, there is an implication of the right to vote. But there is nowhere, it's states in bold, in, neither in the original Bill of Rights that was passed immediately after the ratification of the Constitution, nor in the post-Civil War amendments, 13th, 14th, or 14th, 15th amendments would be the ones. None of those give the positive right to vote. What they do do is to the post-Civil War amendments allow the federal government, at least in in theory, to, uh, as it were, punish states who uh, prevent people from voting according to certain arbitrary categories, such as race Uh, or former condition of servitude. Uh, sorry, uh, but it's a different way of putting it. It's a different way around. It's not and, a positive uh, right to vote. There is that negative power, as you say, but it's one that's never been used, and no one even knows it's there now. But the point I would make is first to completely agree with you. Nowhere is it written that everyone has a right to vote, uh, and even when we do suggest a right to vote the direct election of senators, or as you say, the 14th Amendment, it's always roundabout for various reasons. Uh, when we have the, these kinds of direct election of senators, for example, and we wanted to make sure people weren't voting in the South if they were black. Or as you say, in the 14th Amendment, well, we want to give everybody the right to vote, but we want to make sure that Massachusetts can keep the Irishman from voting too much. So you're absolutely right. No right to vote, but... I don't want to underestimate how it's very contested. This isn't something people placidly accept. The the history of the United States should be taken as a series of battles about the right to vote with no real ground rules. Now, the federal government has the power to establish whatever rules it wants about voting, so it it may do that. It just hasn't done it. But I I wouldn't want uh, people listening to this to get the idea that... uh, that it's anything but highly contested mm. throughout American history. And, so and it makes it so much fun. And contested in a way that I mean, this is not just a, a, a story we may once have, people may once have imagined this was a story of, of, of onward progress. You know, so we begin with only you know elite white men being able to vote and being able to participate and obviously all those wealthy men at the Constitutional Convention and it gradually expands outwards and eventually you, you know, white, white working men and then and women and, and people of colour and so on. It's much more complicated than that, right? There are lots of points of pushback, and we may well be right now in a point of pushback where people who have had um, rights in practice, including the right to vote, lose that right. Yes. For example, the Civil War, after seven, 800,000 people die in the, in the fray, create these amendments, 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment, the right... The, purpose of which is very clearly and explicitly to give the former slaves a right to vote. Uh, Within 30 years, that right is completely taken away. It doesn't exist anymore. Less than 1% of the black people in the South are permitted to vote. Uh, One political scientist suggests, Rick Vallely, that there may not be another country in the world that actually gave someone the right to vote and then snatched it away within three decades. So this notion of forward progress is something people generally say when they're about to swipe the right of vote uh, away from one or another group. So elections are an arena of conflict, not only in that there are contesting 
contesting parties, but that the form of election themselves and who is participating uh, has been contested right from the beginning. Now, you mentioned that in the uh, antebellum era, so the period between the, the, well, in the, in the decades leading up to the Civil War, which broke out in 1861, there were many examples of um, violence on the floor of Congress. But if that has been a pattern throughout American history, why has the United States... I mean, this is a, perhaps a funny way of asking the question, but why has the United States only had one real civil war? I want to emphasize, before I answer about the Civil War, that there are differences today. And perhaps before we get to the Civil War, maybe we should talk about just how those differences pattern themselves by talking about 1800, the okay. election of yeah, 1800. Yeah, no, let's talk about 1800. That's, and, and then yeah, we'll get to the no, Civil no, War. No, 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 I'm happy to talk about 1800. Let's so, do that. Because that was a pretty brutal election. Pretty brutal election. Thomas there Jefferson v. John Adams, right? Yes. Take it away, Jim. Tell All us right. about 1800. And this really <laughs> tells us something compared to uh, the election uh, 220 years later. In 1800, the election is famous for uh, the uh, Federalists are in power. Think of them as the Conservative Party. They're really the Republicans of 1800. And they have done something really quite astonishing, uh, for which they are uh, demeaned to this day, besmirched to this day. They actually take from England, uh, from Britain, a series of alien acts. They are terrified of these immigrants coming into the United States and, uh, and, and wreaking havoc. It, it is, after all, immigrants coming from France. For heaven's sakes, we've had this French Revolution. They're full of crazy ideas. Immigrants coming from Haiti, bringing their slaves who with tales of slave rebellion. So these conservatives are terrified of immigration and create some really quite... Uh, tough laws that basically say the attorney general can get, grab anybody they don't like and, and send them packing. And in this argument, oh, and I should say the other side, the Democrats, they're, uh, they're still the Democrats. Uh, they love the immigrants. And no sooner does someone come over from France that they're ready to put ballots in their hands. So we see here one of the great debates in American history. One other twist the same two parties look at the rebellion in Haiti and see very different things. Now the Democrats, so enlightened on, on immigrants, are the party of slavery. They think, oh, my God, we, we'd better keep those people out. And the Federalists, the conservative party, they make a deal with Toussaint Overture. They actually help him fighting. They send three warships over. So they make a pact a trade pact with the rebellious slaves of Haiti. So look what's happened, Adam. The, the conservative party is, by the standards of the day, terribly enlightened about race and horribly unenlightened, quite repressive, about immigration. The Democratic Party, just the reverse. These battles, immigration and race, are going to rattle American history in every generation, almost every generation. But the two parties separate the battles. Mm -hmm. If your battle is about race, it's the enlightened Republicans against the white supremacy Democrats. If the battle is about immigration, just the reverse. The enlightened Democrats, please come all to our shore and vote immediately against the rather repressive Federalists, Whigs, or Republicans, basically the conservative party. And so the parties 
do not mainline the great conflicts of American history into party politics. It's not that we don't have brawls about both of these issues. It's that the parties don't join them together. And that's a great difference in American Bible. You look in 1800 or 1860, for that matter, the parties separated the two great battles. And today they run them together. So it is all to do with how the parties have divided over the big schisms in American life over two and a half centuries. So the way I would, I mean, thinking still about the election of 1800, the way I would uh, explain what you've just said is that the party of Thomas Jefferson, the, the, the Jeffersonian Democratic Party, were the party of the rights of man in which they silently inserted the word white, mm. right? So they were the part, they loved the French Revolution. You know, Thomas Jefferson is the closest America comes to Robespierre. He believes that every generation should be kind of drenched in the blood of a revolution. It's inherently a good thing. He becomes more radical as he gets older up to a, up to a point. Um, so the Jeffersonian party is the party and, and their successor party under Andrew Jackson are the party that are more likely than their opponents to empower white working men. And they're egalitarian. They're deeply, passionately egalitarian within a racially circumscribed notion of who we are. Whereas their their opponents, the Federalists, later the Whig Party, later the Republican Party, have a much, their vision of rights is much more... There's much more gradation in their understanding of rights. So they are mm. believers and one in the reality of a hierarchical society. They are also still small-R Republicans, so they come to England and they can still be offended by aristocracy <laughs> and all the flummery of, um, of, of, of Westminster or of the palace. But in an American context, they are more inclined to believe that naturally there are rich and there are poor. And, and what they fundamentally believe is the importance of loyalty to the republic. So hence, in the Civil War, and you talk about this moment in your book, and it dramatizes, I think, what you're saying, there is a point in 1863, in the summer of 1863, by which time the Emancipation Proclamation has been issued. There are African-Americans fighting in uniform for the Union and literally dying while holding the flag of the United States, while at the same time on the streets of New York City there are, not entirely, but largely Irish immigrants rioting in order to avoid being conscripted to fight for the Union Army. And so what Republicans do is they look at that, those contrasting images, and they're literally in the pages of a magazine like Harper's Weekly, mm. juxtaposed with one another. Loyal African-Americans in a saintly, Christ-like pose, dying, hugging the flag, juxtaposed against simian Irishmen, um, represented as a kind of racial other fighting in order to not support the Republic. So for the Republican Party in 1863, but you could extend this throughout the whole history of the Republican Party, the issue is loyalty to the Republic. And they are inclined, at least at that time, they're inclined to see that, of course, former slaves potentially could be perhaps our most loyal citizens in the southern states anyway, our most loyal citizens, whereas Democrats are more likely to have an a priori assumption that race is a marker of membership of the of the community. 
Yes, 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 quite right. In fact, as you watch the Democrats spread the rights of man to white men, it's astonishing in state after state to watch uh, all property qualifications fall while black men, even wealthy black men, driven right out of the political system. There's a a document I came across is marvelous if anybody wants to do just a little bit of reading in the 19th century. The plea of the African-American community, of the 40,000 who voted in Pennsylvania, the Democrats have taken over and they have thrown out all property restrictions in 1838, but they've added the word white. And black people are driven right out of the uh, voting community, out of the who who are we, uh, exactly as you say. And uh, abolitionists fighting for... Uh, Black rights fighting for the end of slavery are very much in the same tone that you've just described. They just see the Irish people as horrific because they don't want to give rights to, to blacks. So this history of disparaging the immigrant, mm. disparaging mm. Mm. particularly the Irish immigrant, uh, goes back through the 1840s and 50s with the great Irish immigrations and then really reaches its apotheosis uh, in the period you've just described with the 200,000 black troops fighting and dying, no quarter given by the rebels to black troops, uh, so loyal, as Lincoln says, um, and yet here are other people uh, not even fighting for the cause, indeed rioting so they don't have to fight. Uh, that great moment that really captures the difference uh, between the parties and between the groups. So this is a really important idea in terms of your big picture explanation of why American politics has been polarized and also as we're going to come on to why it's polarized in a different and perhaps more dangerous way now is that two of the big schisms over 250 years of American history, one is immigration, uh, people coming into the country, how do they, to what degree are they absorbed into the polity? How do they become Republican citizens? Can they become Republican citizens? That's one schism. The other schism is black-white relations. It's race. And your point is that for from the foundation of the Republic up through to the middle of the 20th century, and we'll get into why this mm. changed, the two main political parties uh, took different positions on both of those questions. So broadly speaking, you had one party that was anti-immigrant but pro-black, in inverted commas. You had the other party that was literally the opposite, that was anti-black, deeply racist, but broadly pro-immigrant, by which they meant pro-white immigrant, pro-European immigrant. I don't think we've quite then explained the coming of the Civil War, right? So the, the Civil War was obviously a war over slavery. Now, there's a kind of there's at least an analogy here in terms of how parties operate. So the standard view of the coming of the Civil War, and I, which I don't think from having read your book you dissent from, and I wouldn't broadly dissent from, is that up through the middle of the 1850s, the two big political parties, the Democrats and the, the Whigs, uh, were coalitions of pro-slavery and anti-slavery people. Um, both parties, including the Democrats, contained very strong anti-slavery factions. They both also uh, needed the support of slaveholders in the South. It was literally the case that you could not assemble a national 
electoral coalition win on the national level up through the 1850s without winning votes in the slave south, and obviously it was only white people voting, mm-hmm. and in the, the free north. What changed was that in the 1850s, a new political party emerged, the Republican Party, the party that there's an institutional continuity mm-hmm. with the current Republican Party. The Republican Party emerged that broke out of that assumption that you needed to build a national coalition and was able, because of the electoral system, let's be clear, Abraham Lincoln was elected on 40% of the national popular vote, under 40% of the national popular vote in 1860, and yet he became president. How did he become president? Because the Electoral College allowed him to, 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 to... His vote was very efficiently distributed, is the way we put it. That electoral, as a consequence of the design of the electoral system, enabled a party the Republican Party, to elect a president in 1860 for the first time ever, having not even attempted to win votes among slaveholders. So what you have there in the coming of the Civil War then is a story of, of two political parties that had the effect of damping down the conflict over slavery because they both needed to appeal to both factions, being blasted apart by a new party arriving, arising that didn't need to do it. In fact, benefited from the polarisation benefited from it there's a lesson there for today's i mean is that i mean would you broadly agree with that characterization i would completely agree with that characterization i wish i had put it so deftly myself and and it's very interesting adam to look at the parties in the 1850s the Whig party runs its last presidential campaign in 1852 and at that point it becomes clear from votes in congress that the northern Whigs, which really hold the most ardent abolitionists And the Southern Whigs, obviously white men in the South and quite conservative, cannot live together. The party collapses. Two parties emerge, two factions emerge in the next two years, in the two years after this 1852 election and the collapse of the Whigs, to try to take over the the constituency that had been the Whigs. One is the Know-Nothings, the American Party, the party that wants to focus on Many things, but largely hatred of immigrants. Well, that was one part of the Whig coalition, and it would be one part of the Republican coalition. But, as you just said, the slavery issue is much too strong. And the second faction that emerges is a northern faction that says simply, no more expansion of slavery. It's a slavery issue party. And that's the one that wins. It becomes, of course, the Republican Party. And by 1856, just four years later, the nativists have been vanquished and, and, and drift in quietly to the Republican Party, which becomes the northern party that simply says, no more expansion of slavery. We're just going to fight this. So, as you say, they become a simply regional party which could never have won if we didn't have an electoral college that privileges winning a state rather than winning popular vote. So which, once again, just reinforces your point that the rules of the game are always always matter hugely. But that alignment then, uh, the, the Republican Party, the election of Abraham Lincoln then obviously precipitated the Civil War and slavery came to an end uh, as a result of, of of northern victory in the Civil War, and the United States stayed stayed together, and that 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 ratified then 
your underlying the underlying division that you've already described so the republican party then throughout the 19th century was the party of lincoln the party that had ended slavery and so african americans where they could vote and that initially in, included the south after the passage of the 14th and 15th amendments but by the end of the 19th century largely in northern states african americans naturally voted republican why wouldn't they they were the party of lincoln um the democratic party on the other hand uh, remained as it had always been the party uh, the party of the white south and clearly the republican party wasn't going to get anywhere in the white south in 1900 or 1890 any more than it had uh, before you know in 1860 uh, but the democratic party in the in the big cities of the northeast and chicago of course famously became double down on becoming the party of the immigrants and the big urban machines mm. that people have heard of and mayor daily and all of these people these are all <laughs> these people are all democrats right so that 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 reinforces the pattern you've described the democrats being the party of white ethnic immigrants and in that sense very very egalitarian and working class and anti-elitist and the republican party being the party of big business but also the party of african americans now that begins to change right and it begins to change i guess in two phases so the first phase is the new deal and franklin roosevelt and what happens there and then the second phase it begins in the 1960s and establishes where we are at today. Before we get to the New Deal, I would set it up <laughs> yeah. with what the Republicans do. Sure. They didn't need the black vote anymore by, by 1900. And two th markers, I would point, to the Republican Party giving up their championing of black votes. Theodore Roosevelt comes in, and he has Booker T. Washington, the famous uh, black leader, to the White House. And it creates an enormous fuss uh, pitchfork Tillman, a South Carolina senator, mm. claims they'll have to murder a thousand black men, and he does. He uses the uh, the racial epithet, of course, to put them back in their place. Mm. And, mm. and Republicans say, "Good God, this is this is too not much worth trouble. It. Not, not worth, worth it. it. We don't no. need those votes anymore. No, no, no. We're in we're in office now. Leave the South to the Democrats." And William Howard Taft, in his inaugural address gives the second paragraph over to basically throwing up his hands and saying, while no man is less racist than me, I have no racial bone in my body, he says, it's time to stop pushing for the vote and pushing to give the uh, black people a, a jobs. It, it, it only creates animosity against them. So he waves the white flag, literally the white flag, and the Republicans get out of the business. Hmm. So... When the Great Depression comes along, the black vote has still been voting uh, uh, in loyal terms, but to a party that almost ignores them. So in 1932, in the depths of the Great Depression, 95% of black people are under poverty now. Um, the black newspapers begin to say, maybe it's time to vote for the Democrats. And about a third of the black districts do. And Roosevelt sees this. And in 1936, he goes all out to win the black vote. And by golly, he does it. The newspapers start to chuckle. These, these innocent blacks, they say, that don't they know it's the party of white supremacy? Um, and, and, and the foolish people are joining a party that, that can only be faux allies. And a remarkable thing is by 1948, 
the Democratic Party, with black Northerners coming on board, um, the Democratic Party actually passes at its convention a civil rights plank. So we have to Even see... though it still is the party of white supremacy in the South. It is too... So the presence of African-Americans in the party itself changes the party. Surprise, surprise. Surprise, yes. Between 1932 and 1948, really in 1964, there is a battle for the soul of the Democratic Party. By 1964, we have a party, the Democratic Party, which still contains the white ethnics, as we might, the, the immigrant voters, but also now uh, includes African-Americans. And it decreasingly, by 1964, includes white uh, supremacists, yes. <laughs> the defenders of segregation. Those people, by 1964, are in the Republican Party in the South, or at least actually some of them still stick around surprisingly late. But, the, but basically the move is there is this big sorting, and that's in the the big picture there is that that's why you end up in a situation where the the south which has historically for all the reasons we've been talking about been the the democratic the democratic the solid south in the the democratic party one party states becomes republican um but your your point is that in terms of the the big schisms which we're seeing over two and a half centuries on race black white relations and on immigration and the question of multiculturalism and all that comes along with it what you're now saying is if those are the two big 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 issues in american politics then the parties are on completely opposite sides whereas historically that hasn't always been the case yes we have to add the immigration story so in 1924 americans stop immigration they had 1.7 million immigrants in one year 1907 and uh, by the time Roosevelt takes office, there's 30,000. There's no immigrants coming in. There's a little, little smattering from, you know, nice countries like Scotland, but, but really not very many. So the immigration door is closed. And then in 1964, after the assassination of President Kennedy, the Democrats decided we've got to get the immigration laws in the spirit of the martyred Kennedy, who was very keen to open immigration, and in the spirit of the civil rights laws, let's open immigration. The conservatives in Congress wanted to make sure the immigrants would remain white. And so rather than uh, have them be sorted by skill, as was originally proposed, they changed the law in Congress to make sure they were sorted by family, you would have family reunification. And what they thought was those nice people from Wales, they would be the ones, because we've already got lots of Welshmen and Swedes and, and Englishmen and so forth in the United States, well, their families will come. Only what happened was those people were perfectly happy back home, thank you. Uh, it was the uh, people from South America and, uh, and, and from uh, African countries and Asian countries that wanted to come. And the law was now biased to have their families come. So we had this, well, 60 million immigrants in the next few years. And that was very disruptive for American society. And guess which party decided it hated all these immigrants? Not the Democrats. They have always been the party of immigrants. They're suddenly the Republicans became the anti-immigrant party. They've always been the anti-immigrant party. And now look what happens. Democrats have all the minorities on their side. Republicans, anti-African-American, at least let's call them the party of white privilege, and the party that's dodgy about immigration. And so the great conflicts in American mm. history flood right into party politics in so, a way they never have before. So 
we haven't got much time left. <laughs> but oh no, we got we've now got to sort out what to do next, Jim. So <laughs> you you've written this book, um, which takes this long view of American polarization, but at the end you set out some thoughts about what can be done about this. Um, one of them is, uh, unsurprisingly, given what we've just been saying, is there needs to be a right to vote. Um, and there needs to be some kind of agreed-upon, non-partisan system for counting the votes and running the elections. You don't say this, but I would add, why not have a single transferable vote? Or why not have some kind of proportional representation as well? You could easily elect Congress under single transferable vote, because the one argument against proportional representation is that it prevents, uh, it makes it harder to form parliamentary majorities, doesn't apply in a system where you have a separately elected executive. Um, so part of the answer, your answer is you sort all that out. Yes. Tough yes. job. Yes, ab- absolutely. <laughs> and a f- there's a few experiments going on. In fact, uh, Maine now, one state, uh, uh, does True. it exactly they as do. you say. They yeah. ranked, ranked voting. Ranked voting. Yeah. Oh, the, yeah. re- the Republican who lost was furious, took yes. it to court, said this yeah. is this is unconstitutional. But they, the sword cuts both ways. Mm-hmm. The court says, no, if the legislature wants it, the legislature can have it. Uh, yes, we've got to get this. It's a crazy system where you fight about who gets to vote. Uh, before you 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 have the vote, and you do it every time. Uh, now, there's something that's come to light by political scientists since I've written my book. It turns out suppressing the vote doesn't help the Republicans at all, and uh, expanding the vote doesn't help Democrats at all. There there is no real party margin on this. So if we can get past the thinking that it'll advantage me to keep the system crooked, if I can put it that way, maybe we can sort this out, give people a right to vote, Uh, then I think uh, partisanship will be just fine as long as we don't cheat. Here's an optimistic thought, which you you point towards this a little bit towards the end of your book, where you say, you offer some advice to Republicans, and your advice to Republicans is, don't give up on the minority vote. Well, some of them would say, well, we haven't. Um, and, and of course, as, as, as you know, the proportion of uh, especially Hispanic people, Latinx people, but also African-Americans voting for Donald Trump increased between uh, 2016 and 2020. Now, admittedly, from a very low base. Right. But especially with regard to the uh, Hispanic population, and especially if you look at those uh, southern Texas counties, those border counties, there's a big swing to the Republican Party. Now, clearly, that's not good if you're a Texas Democratic strategist. But if if you follow the logic through of that, if the Republican Party, if important political strategy, if enough strategists in the Republican Party, and you've got to get beyond Donald Trump, I think, really, in order to do this, but if enough Republican strategists recognise that there are plenty of reasons why non-white people might support a socially conservative, anti-abortion, pro-gun, anti-government party, then at least you solve one of your problems that you've identified, right? You then reconstitute a multiracial conservative party, Republican Party. Precisely. Uh, I actually uh, am the only Democrat, I think, in all of America that cheered the idea that some Latinos were now moving into the Republican Party. Now, it's still 63-37, so it's, it's, a, it's, not, it's not a tidal wave. But remember what happened to the originally the Republicans took the black vote for granted. And 30 years later, the black vote moved. This strategy we're recommending to our Republican friends uh, involves them fighting the culture war. 
but fighting the cultural war in a way that embraces non-white people on their side. Your recommendation, though, to the Democratic Party is, in effect, that they stop trying to fight the other end of the culture war and go back to trying to address the other great division, which we have not talked about in this conversation in, in the United States, which is the massive issue of inequality, which is far higher now, much bigger gap between the very, very rich and the vast majority of Americans and the Americans at the bottom of the pile, much greater division now than probably at any time in American history, certainly since the so-called first gilded age in the in the 1880s and 90s. Yes, the traditional democratic uh, uh, platform, the Roosevelt platform, the Bernie Sanders platform. It's stunning. If you look at the numbers, that we have ways of measuring this. The, in 1970, the United States fell between France and Japan uh, in terms of uh, levels of equality. Uh, today, it's uh, much closer to Mexico. It's far distant from uh, the... It's fallen completely out of the European leagues and it's playing in the South American leagues. And Mexico may catch up to it in terms of equality. And uh, Democrats have let, that, have let that slide, let that happen. What do they stand for now? Uh, they've had this coalition of minorities, but doing very little for them. So Democrats have to... So put... Democrats need to drop the identity politics stuff. I think so, because the identity politics uh, is not going to get them very far for very long unless they're doing something for identities. But you know very well that that's, that's almost as tough a task for the Democratic Party as saying to the Republicans, you've got to build a multi racial coalition, isn't it? Especially when Republicans are fighting one end of the culture war. How do Democrats avoid responding? The real problem for the Democrats are they a big party with lots and lots of different uh, nodes in it. The university Democratic Party, yes, culture war party right down to the bottom. But if you actually go to the Democratic politicians, culture war is really a rather thin strain. I mean, look at the Democratic members of the Senate, for example. We've got a couple, but very little. They're so large, it's so ungainly that they have not found a cause to rally They do around. have this fundamental problem, and they, they, they have done ever since the, the 1930s, that if you're the party that wants government to do things, to deliver programs, complex programs, and raising taxes in order to do it, that's a hard thing to do. That means you've got to be in office and you've then got to make government work. It's really easy in the American system to stymie that. Whereas the other way around, it doesn't apply, right? So when you've got Republicans running the show, whether it's in Washington or at the state level, what they want to do with government is largely symbolic or it can be done through the courts, as in the, the, over the issue of abortion or, of, or indeed of, of, of gun control. And so it's not a level playing field, and it never can be if you've got one party trying to do something with government and the other party essentially not interested in government and with no incentive to make government work. Yes. In fact, on the contrary, an incentive to make it dysfunctional. Absolutely. Stop them from doing anything and then say, look, they didn't do anything. Uh, the filibuster rule is a great example. You need 60 out of 100 senators to get anything done, anything. But even so... You know, what What does Obama manage to do? He passes a quite serious health care law, not a culture war issue, a health care law. And what does Biden manage to do? He passes an infrastructure bill. So while the Republicans are calling the Democrats hopeless cultural warriors, the Democrats, just as you say, Adam, struggling to get programs through. Mm. Of course, they... they um, they malpractice, they get the program through and they think it will speak for itself. Mm. So neither one of these really quite 
astonishing victories even talked about for the Democrats. It's let's get another program through Mm -hmm. rather than wait a minute. We've just accomplished something really quite remarkable. So you might say Democrats ought to not just fight for uh, uh, equality, but actually when they pass a program, make something of it. So last last question. Some political scientists talk about the current situation in the United States as being like a cold civil war. How do you get out of a cold civil war? Does one side need to win? The first thing I always uh, tell my students is change comes very quickly. Things are always changing. So just hang on uh, and and change will come. I see two, three ways out. One, the republic collapses. Two, the parties both change. They both evolve. Uh, and three, one side wins. Can you see a scenario in which the Republican conservative side wins? Yes, the rules of play are, are such that they can win with the Supreme Court and with the Electoral College. But win in a but but winning in the context of getting out of the, they're winning now. I mean, they're winning now for all of those reasons. But getting out of the Cold Civil War means winning overwhelmingly. It means destroying the other side in the way that the actual Civil War ended by the North destroying the South. Yes, I'm afraid of this victory that I'm describing. I'm trying to be even-handed here, Adam, and you're flushing me out. The Republicans now, partially with Democratic uh, acquiescence, uh, are hugely enabled by the rules of the game, the Electoral College, uh, controlling the rural areas of the country and so forth. One path to victory among the Republicans and one they're pursuing is basically breaking the system in that sense uh, breaking the republic. They uh, they now understand that every uh, election has an official that certifies the election. And if they are yeah. the ones doing so the So of your three options, really, option one, your option one is the republic ending, is the same as the Republicans winning the Cold Civil War. I'm afraid that's probably true. OK. On that, <laughs> <laughs> on that note, Jim, thank you so much. This has been really fun. It has been fun, and I'm sorry I've kept you well, well beyond your, uh, your hour. That's my fault. James Marone, whose books Hellfire Nation and Republic of Wrath are essential guides to American political culture. As Jim and I were discussing, the most dangerous moments in US politics have been fights over who is really an American. And those fights have been made worse because the rules of the game, the process of determining elections, have never been settled. That's certainly what's going on today. But perhaps what's in the end so alarming, especially to liberals, is that at least since 2016, it seems as if the trajectory of American history is being pushed into reverse. For the last half century, it has been possible to imagine that the direction of travel for the United States lay in ever greater union, a Supreme Court that guaranteed more and more rights, and a federal government with the ever greater capacity to regulate on a national level. Well, that confidence in progress, if that's what it is, the evidence that it was still rational to have hope in America from a liberal point of view, now looks misguided. And that, to many people, is profoundly unsettling. You've been listening to The Last Best Hope podcast. The producer is Emily Williams, and I'm Adam Smith. Goodbye. Goodbye.